Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in this morning. Well, this is our 100th show on the air, and I'm excited that you're listening to the 100th show. It's been a great couple of years so far with KDUR, and I love doing The God Solution each Sunday. Just as a recap, we've talked a lot about history, we've talked a lot about science, we've talked a lot about philosophy, logic, etc., and how all of those lead us to belief in God and specifically to faith in Jesus Christ. I often say that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus, and my hope is that as you've listened to the show over the last two years, or the last 99 shows to be exact, I hope that you've come to that conclusion that the best evidence leads to Jesus Christ and the validity of all that he said and all that he claimed and all that he promised in Scripture. I hope that you've been getting a lot out of this show, and I hope that you'll keep listening as we continue doing the show each Sunday. If you'd like to go back and check out some of the previous shows dealing with Everything from evolution to prophecy to whatever, check it out at godsolutionshow.com. Again, that's godsolutionshow.com. And thanks again for tuning in for our 100th episode of The God Solution. I am so glad that you listened to the show. Well, as you know, Easter is coming up next Sunday. And as we think about Easter, I thought it would be good to take today to talk about some of the historical evidence for Jesus Christ. Next week, I hope you'll tune in to hear about the historical evidence for the resurrection. Over the years, we've talked a little bit about the historical evidence for the resurrection. I've done a show on that topic. We've also interviewed some of the world's experts on that topic, like Dr. Gary Habermas. You could get all those shows at godsolutionshow.com. And next week, I'll be discussing the evidence again, giving you reasons for why you can celebrate Easter with confidence, knowing that we truly do have every reason in the world to celebrate the only true hope that this world has ever known, a Savior that promised eternal life, but that beat it as well. He didn't remain in the grave. See, a lot of other religious figures have promised eternal life, and we can go look at their graves today. They died. They promised something that they themselves could not offer, that they themselves could not accomplish. Jesus is different. He promises eternal life to anyone that would put their faith in him. And then he went after that and died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, backing up everything that he promised, letting us know that he alone in the history of the world had the authority to offer eternal life to those that would follow him. It'll be a great show next week, and I hope that you'll tune in to hear about the evidence for the resurrection. But before that, I thought it would be important to talk a little bit about the evidence for Jesus Christ, because the predominant amount of information that we have about Jesus, the best picture that we have of Jesus, comes from the scriptures, and that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Today, however, I thought it'd be good to talk about why we should even trust that picture that we see in the scriptures, and to discuss whether or not there is evidence outside of the Bible for Jesus Christ. And you'll find that there truly is a tremendous amount of evidence for Christ, even outside of Scripture. Well, before we even talk about Scripture, though, and before we even talk about history, 
I think the two are one and the same, but there are some extra biblical historical accounts that we'll discuss today. But before we get to that, I thought it would be an interesting contrast to describe how there are over 100 messianic prophecies in scripture that foretold Christ's life, death, miracles, teaching, and resurrection. So not only do we have the historical evidence for Christ looking backwards, but we can look at the Old Testament and see the prophetic evidence for Christ looking forwards. It's incredible that within the Old Testament, we have over 100 prophecies of Christ that were fulfilled. Now, after Christ's time, looking at accounts outside of Scripture, there are more than 40 historical accounts, again, outside of Scripture, referencing Christ. Now, all of those accounts come from very different perspectives, and they're not all equally trustworthy. So we'll evaluate some of those historical accounts today, the extra-biblical historical accounts. What we should remember, though, is that the quantity of those extra-biblical accounts confirms that Jesus Christ really was someone that walked on this planet. And the biblical narrative is corroborated as well, both from hostile and from supportive sources. We'll see all of those as we talk more today. And as we think about those historical accounts and the extra-biblical accounts, I'm not discussing the extra-biblical accounts because there's a problem with the biblical accounts. That's not the case whatsoever. We have every reason in the world to trust the history of the gospel narratives and the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ. They are historically reliable. But in an attempt to patronize the critic, we will also look at the extra-biblical accounts to describe what they say about Jesus. So before we get there, as we discuss why we can trust the biblical accounts, the gospel accounts of Christ, here are a few reasons that we can trust them. The criteria of canonization, the criteria that had to be fulfilled for the gospel accounts to be accepted. First of all, there are four gospel accounts. We've all heard of these. And then there are also numerous other historical references to Christ throughout the rest of the New Testament. To be included in the Bible, in the New Testament, there had to be a criterion of antiquity. They had to go back to the earliest possible date. Now, when we compare the biblical gospels with, say, the Gnostic gospels, we find that the biblical gospels all date back to the first century, and the Gnostic gospels creep up 100 to 150 years later. So if you want the best historical account, you always go with the earliest historical account. So we always go for the biblical gospels because they are the earliest. Similarly, it's important to consider the ecclesiastical usage. And when the gospels were included in the canon of scripture, they had to pass this test. The first part of that included the reality that they were used in the church. So there were many different Sources that Christians and believers read in the first century AD, but there were not many that were accepted as doctrinally true and used from the start as the source for the Christian faith. The four Gospels that we have are the only ones that were used from the beginning onward. Similarly, they were universally applicable, and the content that was written within the Gospels and the other books of the New Testament could be applied to all people. Next, doctrinal integrity was very important. 
they were not outlandish and wild and crazy. For example, like the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas saying that women had to become men if they wanted to be saved. There was nothing crazy like that in the biblical Gospels. Those types of crazy things began to creep up in later Gospel accounts, which were not even Gospel accounts, but what are known as the Gnostic Gospels and other types of heretical writings. Next, we had apostolic connection. And that's important because all these gospel accounts and the rest of the New Testament had to go back to the very beginning to the very eyewitnesses themselves. Not all the gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Matthew was written by an eyewitness disciple of Christ. Mark was written by the disciple of Peter, who was an eyewitness and disciple of Christ. Luke was written by one of the most phenomenal historians of the first century, who had access to the eyewitnesses and describes that in his gospel account. And finally, John was written by Jesus' closest disciple, an eyewitness to his life, death, miracles, and resurrection. So the gospels have this wonderful apostolic connection and tremendous eyewitness testimony. Next, the number and quantity of the manuscripts of the New Testament is staggering. Around 6,000 Greek manuscripts, about 18,000 other translations for a total of 24,000 plus early manuscripts from which we can translate the content of the New Testament. This makes it the most accurate and credible ancient text. In addition to that, the church fathers reproduced in their writings thousands of quotations of the New Testament, reproducing every verse in the New Testament except for 11 verses so that we can know exactly what was originally written. So here's the critic's dilemma. The critic wants to get out of believing in Christ, so they have to discredit the incredible reliability of the New Testament and the gospel narratives. And even if we granted them that, even if we said we can give you that, which we would never do because the gospel accounts are trustworthy, but just to patronize them, if we were to toss out all the Christian accounts, we would still have more historical accounts of Jesus than of Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the world of that day. This is incredible. The Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, carm.com slash Jesus-exist, gives the following list of historical accounts of Christ. Ryan Turner writes, There are over 42 sources within 150 years after Jesus' death which mention his existence and record many events of his life. He describes the nine traditional New Testament authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the author of Hebrews, James, Peter, and Jude. He describes 20 early Christian writers outside the New Testament, including Clement of Rome, Second Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Martyrdom of Polycarp, Didache, Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, Fragments of Papias, Justin Martyr, Aristides, Athenagoras, Theophilus of Antioch, Quadratus, Aristo of Pella, Melito of Sardis, Diognetus, Gospel of Peter, Apocalypse of Peter, and Epistula Apostolorum. Each of these describing different aspects of the life of Christ from different perspectives, not all of them credible. Again, those are some of the extra-biblical sources. Next, we have four heretical writings, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, the Apocryphon of John, and the Treatise of Resurrection. Next, he describes nine secular sources. I'll describe some of these in more detail in a few moments. Those include Josephus, a Jewish historian, Tacitus, a Roman historian, 
Pliny the Younger, a Roman politician, fled John, a freed slave who wrote histories, Lucian, a Greek satirist, Celsus, a Roman philosopher, Marabar Serapion, a man writing to his son, and Suetonius and Thallus, among others. Historical textual evidence for Tiberius Caesar's existence is minimal in comparison to that of Christ. There are several different references to Tiberius Caesar, of course, the known ruler of that day, yet those references are outnumbered by the extra-biblical sources which give historical corroboration to Christ. The idea that Christ is not a historical figure is a myth. The history is convincing, and that includes both the history in the Gospels and the extra-biblical accounts as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango on KDUR.org online. We're discussing some of the historical references to Christ, especially the extra-biblical historical references to Christ. I'm glad you're tuning in. So what are some of those extra-biblical accounts? The gospel accounts about Jesus, like we said at the beginning, are trustworthy, and they are corroborated by many external historical accounts. There are more historical references to Jesus than to Tiberius Caesar, the ruler of his time. Here are a few examples. You can read these at rationalchristianity.net. The Babylonian Talmud preserves Jesus' arrest warrant, saying Jesus was to be stoned for practicing sorcery. This corroborates the reality that he performed miracles. And for leading Israel astray, which confirms the criticism against Christ that he was a blasphemer who made himself equal with God, leading others away from God, supposedly. The Babylonian Talmud also contains other probable references to Christ, One says, woe to him who makes himself alive by the name of God. Obviously, a reference to Jesus' resurrection. Another reference in the Babylonian Talmud says, he then went and raised Jesus by incantation. Again, historical corroboration even for the resurrection within a hostile source. Next, we have Josephus, a Jewish historian. Here are just a few of his many statements, many of which described Christ. He says, Now there arose at this time a source of further trouble in one Jesus, a wise man who performs surprising works, a teacher of men who gladly welcomes strange things. He led away many Jews and also many of the Gentiles. He was the so-called Christ. When Pilate, acting on information supplied by the chief men around us, condemned him to the cross, those who had attached themselves to him at first did not cease to cause trouble. And the tribe of Christians, which has taken this name from him, is not extinct even today. Josephus continues, So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So multiple references confirming much of the gospel accounts of Jesus. The fact that Jesus had many followers, that he was a teacher, that he performed miraculous works, that he led many of the Jews and even some of the Gentiles, that he was called the Messiah, and that he was the so-called Messiah, that Pilate condemned him to death, and that the Christians continued to follow him even after this fact. Tacitus, a Roman historian, says the following, Consequently, to get rid of the report, 
Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Pliny the Younger, a Roman politician, described Christians worshiping Christ as to a God, describing the fact that even the early believers saw Christ as God and worshipped him as such. Lucian, a Greek satirist, wrote a satire titled The Passing of Peregrinus, describing Christians who worshipped the leader of a cult who was impaled in Palestine and lived under his rules. Celsus, a Roman philosopher, is refuted by Origen, an early church father, for his blasphemous explanations of Christ. And Celsus says that Jesus was born out of wedlock and that he learned magical powers in Egypt by which he panned himself off as a god. So some of Celsus's incorrect descriptions of Christ, which were refuted by an early church father, nonetheless corroborate the reality of Christ's virgin birth, obviously from a hostile and critical perspective, of his miracles, obviously from the critical perspective which called them magical powers, and even his own reference to being equal with God. Marabar Serapion was a man writing to his son who wrote, For what advantage did the Jews gain by the death of their wise king? He then connects that to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. This is phenomenal evidence, again, for Christ's death and the fact that he was known as the king of the Jews, as Pilate had inscribed on the cross. Next, we have Suetonius. He banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus, is what Suetonius wrote. And then he continues, Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Finally, we have Julius Africanus quoting two other historical accounts which have been lost to history, Thallus and Phlegon, who wrote, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak. So again, the gospel account of the sky going dark at the time of Christ's crucifixion is preserved in three extra-biblical sources. Phenomenal. All this evidence for Christ's life, death, teaching, miracles, and resurrection is overwhelming. Jesus was a real man who really lived, walked, died, and rose again here on this earth. Scholars believe that Jesus was born in 5 B.C. This is because Josephus wrote that Herod died in 4 B.C. and Jesus was born before Herod died. He was likely born between 7 and 4 B.C., but scholars think 5 is the most likely. Similarly, Jesus died in A.D. 33. That's because that is the only date that Nisan 14th, the Passover, fell on a Thursday, the day before his crucifixion on Friday. 
The only other possibility would be A.D. 30, but that doesn't allow enough time for his ministry. So we know from history that Jesus was born in 5 B.C., most likely, and that he died in A.D. 33, most likely. History, again, corroborates his life, death, ministry, resurrection, all of this. Knowing that the extra-biblical accounts corroborate Jesus' life, miracles, teachings, death, and resurrection, I think it's important to prioritize the Bible. Because these extra-biblical accounts are written from numerous different critical and hostile sources with all sorts of different personal agendas, and most of them are written long after the biblical accounts, making the biblical accounts and the gospel accounts the earliest and most reliable and credible historical accounts of Christ's life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection. So I would encourage you to go directly to the Bible to learn what it says about Jesus, knowing that that is where we have the most accurate portrait of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, if you've never done it before, to begin with the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a tremendous portrait of Christ written by his closest disciple. An eyewitness account of all that Jesus did, all that he taught, and a very incredible and heart-wrenching account of what he went through for each of us so that we could have a relationship with God so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins, so that we could enjoy the promise of an eternal life with God in heaven and an abundant life of meaning and purpose here on this planet. So what does all this mean? It's important to know that we have historical evidence both in the Bible and outside the Bible for the life of Christ. But what does that all mean? It's one thing to believe the historical evidence and to agree that Jesus actually lived that he actually walked, taught, performed miracles, died, and even rose again from the dead. That's great, but that's only part of how each of us needs to interact with the history. The other side requires that we do something with this, because Jesus made these incredible statements, like in John 14, 6, saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also said in John 10 that other ways and other prophets and other religious liars were thieves and liars. He set himself up to be the only way to God. And either he was right or wrong. And each one of us has to make that decision. C.S. Lewis put this into a great way of understanding and responding to the evidence, saying that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord and God. So if Jesus went around claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be God in human flesh, claiming to be able to forgive sin and offer eternal life, if he went around claiming all of that and knew that he did not have the authority to claim such things, if he knew that he really wasn't what he claimed to be, he would be a liar. But C.S. Lewis says, we know from history that such a man of character and integrity that impacted the world more than any other, was not a liar. The next option, Lewis says, is that he was a lunatic. Anyone that said such things and did such things and actually thought he was God in human flesh and capable of forgiving sin, but wasn't, would be a lunatic. And C.S. Lewis says, we know also from history, 
from his impact on the world, from his impact on those he led while he walked on this planet. We know that he was no lunatic whatsoever. Finally, Lewis says that leaves us with only one option, and that's that he was what he said he was, Lord and God, Savior of the whole world. Coming to that conclusion, which Lewis would say is the only logical conclusion when dealing with the historical data, we must each decide, will I accept or reject his claim to lordship? Will I say, nope, I see the evidence, but I choose not to follow what I know to be true? Or will I say, yes, Jesus, the evidence is overwhelming and there is no other option. Only you can give me eternal life. Only you can conquer death. Only you can forgive my sins. I will follow you for who you are. C.S. Lewis would tell us that's the only logical outcome to his trilemma. And it's the outcome that I want to lead you to today. The historical reliability of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection confirm his claim to be equal with God, to be God in human flesh, capable of forgiving your sins. I would encourage you today to take the final step and say, Jesus, I trust you. And that brings me to the message of the Bible and the whole reason for Christ's coming to this earth. The Bible says that God loves you infinitely, that he thinks about you constantly, that nothing you could ever do would get him to stop loving you. Similarly, he has a plan for your life, a plan of meaningfulness. He wants you to live the life that he created you for to impact this world in a way that no one else can. There is a purpose for your life here on this planet. Unfortunately, you and I are sinful and selfish, and our sin separates us from God. It separates us from relationship with him. It separates us from the purpose that he has for us, and ultimately, it will separate us from the eternity with him that he desires for us. The Bible says that would result in us spending an eternity away from him in what the Bible calls hell. That's a sad place to end the story, though, and I'm thankful it doesn't end there. The Bible says God loves you so much that even though you're a sinner, he died on the cross, taking all your sins on himself, every single one. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. Whatever gives you the most regret, he died to pay for that. So that if you put your faith in him, you can be guaranteed an eternity with him in heaven and an abundant life with him on this planet. If you've never taken that step, I would encourage you to take it this week as we get ready to celebrate the hope of the good news of Easter by saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I realize that the history is solid, that you are who you say you are and that you can offer what you can say you offer and that only you have conquered death. Please forgive my sins. Please come into my life. Be my Savior and Lord. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. I give my life to you. The Bible says if you take that step, you will be adopted into his family, even this moment, and that Christ will never leave you or forsake you. I hope that you'll take that step based on the evidence of Christ's life, ministry, teaching, miracles, death, and resurrection today. I also hope that you'll take another step and come join us for Connect this 
Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble 125 and grow in your faith with a bunch of other believers right up here at Fort Lewis College. You could also join us this very morning at New Hope at the Storyteller Durango 9 Theater at 10 a.m. Again, that's 10 a.m. this morning. New Hope meets at the Storyteller Durango 9 Theater. I hope you'll join them and grow in your faith this morning. Like I said earlier, get all of our previous shows at GodSolutionShow.com and please let us know what you think. I really do appreciate your comments and questions. Definitely tune in next week for more evidence concerning Easter. It'll be a great time. And like I already mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'll close by saying it again. An open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And I hope you'll look at the evidence we discussed today with an open mind, an honest heart, a humble disposition, and that you'll diligently search for the truth and find Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday. I